Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us now is Admiral James Stavridis. He is the retired former military commander of NATO, dean of the Fletcher School of Diplomacy at Tufts University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Admiral Stavridis, a pleasure always to speak with you. What is your reaction to the war of words on Twitter between the United States and Iran? I think it's worrisome, Pim. Um, Let's take it from President Trump's perspective first. He sees um, kind of an angry but actually fairly stereotypical uh, set of rhetoric coming out from Tehran. We've we've seen that kind of language from them repeatedly. And then he uh, launches this uh, real screed, uh, all in caps. Um, I can understand the emotion of the response, but I'll tell you, you know, to put it in a movie context, we probably need less fast and furious and a little more cool hand Luke, which is to say, slow down, analyze and understand uh, we want to avoid getting in a war, but we do want to change Iranian behavior. Um, Finding that balance, I think, is going to be the challenge going forward. Well, what do you recommend? What would be the Mm. next thing to do, given that the president seems to, well, I mean, if you want to, uh, you know, carry the cool hand Luke uh, (laughs) analogy further, um, it's a failure to communicate between Iran and the United States. <laughs> what a nice point. Um, so I'd do five things, I think, and I'll knock them off very quickly. Uh, one, I would focus the intelligence community more dramatically, particularly in the maritime zone. Secondly, I would increase our defensive posture in the Middle East, because uh, if this thing is going to go hot, we're going to need to be ready. So that's, uh, for example, missile defenses. Thirdly, I'd go out to our allies, partners, and friends in the region, our Sunni partners, and our Israeli partners. Fourth, I'd go to NATO, I'd go to the Europeans and try and work through our current set of tensions there to get them on board. And fifth and finally, Pim, I'd get the interagency more connected. We need CIA, Department of Justice, Department of Treasury working more closely together. Um, we That's a long way of saying we need a strategy, not an angry Twitter burst. Do we have any evidence that these strategies work? I think we do. Um, If we look around the world, um, our strategy worked very successfully in Colombia in defeating an insurgency. It has worked very well in the Balkans, uh, bringing peace to a very troubled region there. I think um, more contemporaneously, our strategy has worked fairly well in Asia, um, keeping our allies working together as we put pressure on North Korea. I commend the administration for what's happening in North Korea, and I think they took a strategic approach there. I hope they do the same in Iran. You mentioned the Sunni allies, Saudi Arabia. What do you believe they want to have happen? They have a very belligerent stance toward Iran. Uh, Broadly speaking, what they want is Iran to withdraw from a variety of Arab countries where they are pushing hard against Sunni 
populations. Uh, Iran, of course, leads the Shia bloc in the region. So that is, they would like to see uh, Iran back out of Syria, back out of Lebanon, back out of Yemen, back out of uh, trying to interfere with the kingdom itself, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, reduce its ties with Qatar. So they see Iran as an expansionist imperial power. They want to contain it. And under Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, they will be very strong in doing so. You mentioned the maritime zone. And I, of course, want to mention your latest book entitled Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. When you mention maritime power, don't you have to think of what China wants to do? You absolutely do. And let's uh, reflect on the fact, Tim, that this region is parked almost dead center in the one belt, one road uh, strategy that China is employing in the movement of raw materials from Africa and the Middle East to them and the return flow of finished goods. So this, in my view, would be an area in which attempting cooperation with China might prove fruitful. China does not have preconceived notions about its relationships with Iran, and it is in China's interest and in the United States' interest to keep uh, that maritime flow of goods going back and forth, especially out of the Arabian Gulf. Who or what entity inside of NATO do you believe will respond positively if we want to improve that relationship to help in these issues regarding the Middle East? You know, at the moment, uh, relations between the United States and the rest of our NATO allies are quite low. Let's be honest. We had a, a, a bad summit. Um, there was uh, finger pointing both ways. Um, I think the president is right to press on the European allies to increase their defense spending. But I do think that they have a point that um, if they are going to go forth and operate with the United States around the world, they want to do that in a spirit of cooperation, which didn't feel like it was forthcoming at the summit in Brussels. So I think there's some fence mending to do on both sides. In terms of who we're closest to, who can help us the most, it would be the United Kingdom within the alliance. Um, and we have to hope that uh, we improve our relations, particularly with Germany, which is a significant actor both within the EU and within NATO, and that relationship is in bad shape right now. Well, in that vein, the summit in Brussels was followed by the summit in Helsinki. What is your reaction? What is your analysis? Um, the summit in Helsinki was a major misstep by the President of the United States, and I think that's pretty well validated across the political spectrum. The problem was um, less about the fundamental idea of talking to Russia. I believe we should. I think we should confront Russia where we must, but cooperate wherever we can. We don't want to stumble back into a Cold War. But the problem was the atmospherics, the sense that our president was taking the side of Vladimir Putin over the intelligence community. And I think, uh, above all, a kind of refusal to fully admit Russia's intrusion into our election, which is a, a fundamental um, violation of international law by Russia. So atmospherically didn't work, particularly coming on the heels of the 12 indictments of Russian uh, intelligence operatives. Right. The overall it. idea of working with Russia does make sense.
we got to leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Admiral James Stavridis, Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and the author of Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. Currency manipulation, the dollar, China, the Federal Reserve all come into focus. Vincent Signorella, our global macro strategist for Bloomberg News, joins us here in studio to figure this all out. All right, Vincent, what is going on with U.S. officials talking down the dollar, talking up the dollar? Who are we to believe? I, I think you're going to stick with Mnuchin on this one. I think Trump's just firing a couple off the uh, off the bow, basically, just to get uh, everyone a little nervous. He's very upset with Germany. So when he says the Europeans, he's really speaking about Germany. Uh, in terms of trade with Germany, we have a, a, a big deficit. So he, when he Is says- Is that all automobiles? Pr- a big part of it is automobiles, but at the same time, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's very specific machinery. Germany specializes in very high tech machinery, especially in the surgical space. So we, we do have this broad deficit with Germany. He throws the Europeans all under the bus with the, with the same stroke. Um, but at the same time, the Euros 115, 118, it's not doing anything. So you, you, I, I would look past any criticism of Europe and realize that this is specifically aimed at China. Is, but is this, is, wait a second, but before we get to China, is this bus going to get more expensive? Which, what do you mean? The, the bus that, you, if you want to import an automobile from Germany, is that going to get more expensive? My guess is at the end of the day, we'll reach an accord, especially on autos, with uh, the Europeans. It's a big business, and th- he's getting a lot of pressure from the United States manufacturers as well. So I think they're going to come together on that one. It's the same kind of squawking we hear about NAFTA. Right. Eventually, NAFTA will come back around. You believe that will happen? I believe it'll happen. It's just going to take a little bit of time and a little bit. And we're going to see these gyrations in the market. Okay, because we got John claude Juncker. I believe he's... a Attending the White House meeting yeah, this is going to be really fun because on... he's kind of lost some credibility on the street, to be honest. So it'll be very interesting to see what he says. Well, explain that. Well, he's gone off over the years in in really odd, almost Trump like statements, so that the markets have like sort of pulled back and 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 not reacted so much to what he's had to say. We're not, you know, if you if you look at it in a sense, it's like who is he really representing? He's going to the White House on Wednesday. All right, the, move to China. China. Go for um, it. Th- what I would like to really, really stress is this is not a currency war. This is not China trying to devalue their currency. And take it back a few steps when when Bernanke did uh, QE and we were accused and he was accused of starting a currency war. What he was doing was keeping interest rates low, flattening the curve because of worries about the economy. China has some substantial worries about the economy. They've seen increased corporate defaults. They had a massive liquidity issue that they've just, again, once again, did a, a big medium-term lending facility to add to this liquidity. Whenever a central bank does a big add, you see a currency weaken. So the the China's yuan by default is weakening, but it's not their aim to weaken the currency to be a pain to Trump, although he will point to that, they're really pointing towards trying to to stimulate. This is a domestic issue for them. Purely a domestic issue, purely a liquidity issue, and it's a worry. I mean, if if you're an emerging market investor, this is a big, big worry. China's growth has been slowing, and for them to 
to put this much money into the system is a is a real wake-up call for emerging markets. It should be. Um, we've seen some depreciation in emerging market currencies, but to my look, we have a lot more to go if this becomes a major economic issue for China. What does the Vincent Signorella chart tell you about the future of EM currencies such as Brazil, Russia, India? I think EM is going to stay uh, under the gun. I think we're going to see Trump continue this pressure through the midterm elections in November. This plays well to his political base. Even if there's short-term pain for U.S. manufacturers, which is in this Rust Belt, in the place he's trying to aim at from a political standpoint, there's a, there's a great deal of long-term support and a great deal of play that he gets out of that. He um, doesn't have a lot else to hang his hat on. You know, other than, I mean, he's got tax cuts as well. So we may see another round of tax cuts hit the U.S. Uh, before November. But in, and in the end, that should keep the dollar a little bit alive. It should see pressure in the EM. Do you look at the price of copper? I do. What does the price of copper, which has been volatile and yeah. falling? Un volatile and falling, yes. What does that tell you about, let's say, the economy of a place like Australia? Well, I, I think what it says, again, um, what's going on with the China situation and how that impacts Australia and then eventually, obviously, copper. If, if These are the, um, the the base metals that feed into production. And when you have the, the main buyer of, of those products stumbling a bit, then the input to that main product stumbles. And that's what we've been seeing in copper and we're also seeing in the Australian dollar. What's the biggest mistake that you see currency traders make in an environment like this? Reacting to the immediate news. We saw something hit the markets this morning about uh, how Mexico's uh, economy minister says we're, we're gonna aim to get NAFTA done by the end of August. The peso strengthened immediately off of that, a couple of big figures, it's old news. He actually said that yesterday. Um, and then the peso immediately weakens when everybody wakes up, or actually I squawked it and said, by the way, this is yesterday's news. Uh, and then it immediately turned around. It, the odds of getting NAFTA done by August are really, really tight. And then the bigger picture is, even if we get an agreement of sorts, it needs to be ratified by Congress, which at this point, unlikely to get done in 2018. So even if we had a, a, a agreement at arm's length, we still need to go through the congressional process, not happening this year. So reacting to news like that is always going to come back to bite you. 10 seconds. Tell people how they can follow you on Squawk. If you have a Bloomberg terminal and you just type SQU, you'll see a launch pad come up for uh, Squawk Go. And what we'll do is we will speak live breaking news uh, down your terminal. Thanks very much. Thank you. Vincent Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg News. Well, one of Colorado's largest recreational pot companies is planning to bring Willie Nelson's marijuana brand to Canada and then go public in Toronto. Here to tell us about raising capital in the cannabis industry is Kevin Murphy. He's the chief executive of Acreage Holdings. Kevin Murphy, thanks very much for being with us. Tell us about Acreage Holdings and your capital raise and what that tells you about the appetite that investors have for the industry. Well, Pam and Lisa, thanks so much for having me on the show. And, 
You know, Acreage Holdings today is the largest U.S. cannabis provider um, now with 13 states, soon to be 15 states. Um, our footprint covers 150 million people in this country, and our goal is to raise enough capital to be an aggregator in the space. And this would be the last round of financing that we will do before accessing the public markets here in the fall. All right. Before we get to the public markets, Acreage owns cultivation, processing, and dispensary operations, correct? That is correct. We are vertically integrated in every state um, or striving to be vertically integrated in in every state. But you are absolutely correct. We control the entire um, life cycle of the plant from seed to dispensary. And on your advisory board, you have former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, as well as former House Speaker John Boehner. That is correct. We couldn't be more proud to have those two gentlemen standing shoulder to shoulder with us at Acreage. Why, if you could raise a quarter billion dollars, $250 million, why did you then just raise $119 million? Well, we had initially set out to raise $50 million, but we had so much enthusiasm for the raise that we ended up raising as much as $119 million, which is the largest raise ever done in the United States for cannabis. We also anticipate raising additional capital in the fall, and so we wanted to leave a little bit of room in order to do a, another financing uh, this year. Now, you intend to launch on the Canadian Securities Exchange. Why in Canada? Well, that is correct. And you know, we go wherever we are welcome. And today, the Canadians are with open arms welcoming us um, to the Canadian Exchange. In Canada, it is federally legal. Unfortunately, in the United States, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug, which is defined by having no medicinal value. Now, that would uh, preclude us from being on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, but we do hope soon to be able to list on one or the other here in the U.S. What kind of financial gain are, let's say, taxpayers missing out on by having the federal government still regard cannabis as a Schedule I drug? This business and this industry is estimated to be, by 2025, $100 billion in size. Compared to other consumables, it is a very, very large marketplace. We at Acreage advocate for uh, banking. We advocate to pay taxes. And at the end of the day, I believe that it could have a major impact on um, this country's opiate crisis, we'd love to be taxed and have a lot of those tax dollars go to reducing opiate use in this country. That tax revenue is currently unavailable to this, the, the federal government. Uh, what is holding this up? The fact that it's a Schedule One drug today, again, being defined as having no medicinal value. And at the end... Uh, we believe that this drug needs to be descheduled. The majority of this country believes that cannabis should
should be legal. And we're hopeful that Congress will essentially vote with their constituents to make that a reality. And we believe it's going to happen sooner than later. Just give you 30 seconds. Does it strike you as ironic that cigarettes and alcohol are legally sold in the United States and taxed, but cannabis isn't? Every industry goes through a change, and we believe that the change is now for cannabis. We've seen prohibition in this country with alcohol, and from our vantage point, we are on the cusp of sea change. And with Speaker Boehner being a naysayer historically and now having the courage to change his mind, we believe others will as well. And that's why we believe we're well positioned to be a dominant force in the cannabis space when it is federally legal. To us, it's not an if, it's a matter of when. Kevin Murphy, Chief Executive, Acreage Holdings. They've raised nearly $120 million in their latest financing round with plans to go public at the end of the year in Canada. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. My next guest knows all about the modern economy in a world where everything can be copied. In other words, control C, control V. We all know about it, but how do you deal with it? He is Howard Yu. He is the Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at the IMD School of Business in Switzerland. And his new book is called Leap, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything is can be copied. Howard, you thank you very much for being with us. Maybe you could just start off by telling us a little bit about why you decided to write this book. In many ways, the book concept really came from my conversation with executive and manager whom I had run conferences and workshop. And one of the key topics or one of the biggest complaints they always have, they would say, my product is getting commoditized meaning they find it very, very hard to differentiate in the marketplace. They're subject to all kinds of pricing pressure. And whenever they launch or introduce a new type of innovation, those product features get copied overnight. And so that becomes the crux or the thrust for me to dive into this inquiry. Now, as you decided that this was a focus of attention, did you notice that this is an issue that had been going on for a very long time? I mean, we may think that this is just something to do with technology, but, you know, you go back even to, let's say, uh, the, the founding of the United States and, and the industrialization of the United States. Uh, factories in the U.S. were copying European goods even then. Absolutely. I thought that's pretty much a contemporary phenomena. But as I dig into the historical past, it turns out things getting copied was a repeated complaint across era, across industry, across continent as well. In fact, once a point in time in Switzerland, there is no patent law for chemistry or chemical product. So in the land of counterfeit, the Swiss were basically copying the German to produce drugs. And that had historically, 200 years ago, the biggest complaint by the German drug manufacturer. Well, let's talk about Leap and what did you discover? How can companies deal with copying in an age where it is as simple as a Control-C movement on the keyboard? 
Yeah, in many ways,、um, executive always dream about building up a competitive positioning that they could stay away from global competition. That turned out to be pretty much a mirage. In many ways, competition is almost like mountaineering. So the pioneering company would try to reach the mountain peak, and the latecomer would also try to reach the same altitude. Now, when the knowledge underpinning the industry stays stagnant, the latecomer sooner or later would reach the same height. No value proposition can stay unique forever. No blue ocean can stay blue forever. Eventually, blue ocean turn red. What I discover is. Pioneering company can play a different game. They can leap from one knowledge discipline to the next, and then the next. And when the underlying knowledge of an industry continue continue to leap forward, then climbing the mountain is as if there's constant mudslide pushing everyone down. In that scenario, it turns out it's the most experienced, the most pioneering company stand a better chance to stay on top of competition. Can you give us some examples of companies that are able to do this? Sure.、Um, one of the prime example I use in the book is the pharmaceutical industry I briefly mentioned earlier. So it turns out in the beginning of the pharmaceutical industry, two hundred years ago, everyone came up with new drugs based on organic chemistry. The first blockbuster in the world is in fact called antipyrin. It's a fever-reducing drugs, and it's this chemist. Making chemical dye for the textile industry, discovered this medicinal medicinal benefit to to solve human issues. Now you might remember after,、uh, people talk about Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, the first antibiotics,、uh, roughly around the Second World War. So after the Second World War, all the pharmaceutical industry moved from the study of chemistry to microbiology. They want to find out the more potent fungus. To find out the next pay dirt, to find out the more potent antibiotics. So the knowledge discipline really moved from organic chemistry to the study of mi- microbiology. Today is all about genomics and DNA and genetics. So looking back to the long history of pharmaceutical industry, the salient features of this particular sector is the leaping of knowledge from one to the next, from organic chemistry to microbiology to genomics. But that doesn't that beg the question、uh, that you need to have confidence in order to do that? Because if you don't have the confidence, you're going to try to build a bigger moat around your mountain so that no one even gets to climb on top of it. How do you help build that confidence? Yeah, this is a tricky question because on the verge of leaping from the old knowledge to the next, oftentimes those require investment. Is very very hard to pinpoint through the traditional financial an- analysis. I give you a concrete example. On the verge of launching the targeted cancer drugs called Clevec by Novartis at the time, the CEO was facing a paradox. In many ways, this new targeted drugs solving a rare form of leukemia cancer called CML. The target market is relatively small, so all the executives around him. Basically said, we should allocate the corporate resources to more larger disease class like prostate cancer, breast cancer, and so on. But the CEO at the time, Daniel Vansella, when he reviewed back the、uh, early clinical trial, he thought it's not so much about increase of revenue, but it really pioneering of a new way for drug discovery using genomics know-how. And he basically told the team, money doesn't matter. We have to move ahead. So every time when I look back to historical 
uh, analysis that companies successfully leap from one knowledge to the next, there is certain top-down intervention has to happen going beyond traditional financial analysis that we all know very well. That was Howard Yu. He is the Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at the IMD School of Business in Switzerland. His new book is entitled Leap, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied. And to just give some more, uh, well, pertinent uh, information related to this, you know, the uh, Food and U.S. Food and Drug Administration, just last week, it announced what it called something called the Biosimilars Action Plan. And the idea is to improve the efficiency of the biosimilar and interchangeable product development and approval process, uh, basically making it uh, easier and uh, faster for companies uh, to create biosimilar drugs. And uh, already, uh, we know that about a dozen uh, approvals for biosimilars have made it uh, through the uh, FDA, and they've started uh, this effort to accelerate the development and adoption of these uh, particular uh, drugs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 